Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We're in a series called Elijah. We took a one-week break last week. It was just actually one of my highlight Sundays here at Southridge. It was amazing to gather as one body at one service, see a number of folks get baptized, to have lunch together over outside in the activity center. Just an incredible blessing as a church to do that. And uh, I know many of you are enriched by that, and I certainly was as well. But we are actually diving back into Elijah. And this morning, I just want to take a little bit of a detour. Sometimes we do this, not too often, uh, before we actually get into some of the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, This morning and next week kind of dovetail a bit, so we're going to be looking at some things a little bit more thoroughly next week. But in light of some recent things, I just want to kind of dive in maybe to a little bit of a um, a tangent this morning, Um, not tangent to scripture, but just to actually the series of Elijah. Often I'm asked, how do you know the Bible is true? How do we know what is true? And not just even biblically, but just even philosophically, you can look this up on Google or whatever. There's often two things that are presented as tests for truth. It's whether or not things cohere or correspond. Sometimes it's called coherence and correspondence. Coherence and correspondence. Those are two often very significantly large buckets for how we know what is true. Obviously, since we believe in the Bible here at Southridge, it's pretty important that we understand this through that filter. So maybe first coherence, because those are kind of some big words that are challenging. Coherence simply means Do the ideas within a system of truth work together? Are they internally consistent? Or are there opposites? Are there contradictions? And maybe I'll give an idea from our culture and our world to understand how that works. Uh, As a culture, one of our foundational truths as a culture is there's absolutely no absolute truth, right? It's one of the foundational beliefs of our culture that there's no absolute truth. Well, first, right out of the chute, there's already a problem with that. It's not coherent. It actually contradicts itself. It's self-contradicting to say there are no absolute truths except one, that there is no absolute truth. It's self-contradictory. You're both saying absolute truth does not exist, and then you're saying there is an absolute truth that exists, that is, there are no absolute truths. Uh, part of the way that works out in our culture is this. You often hear in our culture that love is better than hate, right? We all say that, like, love is better than hate. Well, if there's, if there's not really any kind of absolute truth... You really can't say that love is better than hate. If there's no really standard for truth, maybe there's someone who gets just a lot of inspiration out of hating, and that makes life work for them. It it gives them more friends. It gives them different kinds of friends. And so maybe for someone, they get a lot of inspiration and life out of hating. You see, there's no absolute truth We can't really objectively say that love is any better than hate. 
We can't say that loving and compassionate actions towards someone is any different or any better than beating someone or hurting someone. And so even as a culture, our system of truth is not coherent. It doesn't internally cohere. It's self-contradicting. One of the amazing things about Scripture is that it was written over a course of about 1,500 years by about 40 different authors that the Holy Spirit used. But amazingly enough, as we often say, it tells one consistent story about who God is, about his work in the world. And so it explains to us, and sometimes Scripture presents things to us that we can't necessarily understand. Number one, Scripture does not say that God is three and then deny that and say that God is one. Scripture says God is both three and both one. It's not contradictory. We can't fully comprehend that, but it says he's actually both. He is both three and he's also one entity. So Scripture has a sense of coherence to it. It fits together. It's not self-contradictory, even like some of the major beliefs of our culture are self-contradictory. Secondly, there's correspondence. If Scripture is this story of God's activity in our world, then we would naturally expect to find connections between the story that we have in Scripture and things that we find in our world. Now, that might be philosophical correspondence. For instance, Scripture talks about good as well as evil. It talks about why there's wickedness and horrific, tragic evil in our world that harms and violates people. But then it also has correspondence to love and compassion and mercy and grace. And so the truth of Scripture corresponds to what we see in our world and makes sense out of out of both the evil and wickedness, as well as out of the goodness and righteousness that we see. Scripture corresponds to that, explains it well for us. If you don't believe in Scripture, those are two simply abstract things. You really can't say that evil is any worse than goodness and love and mercy, as we said earlier. So there's philosophical correspondence, but there's also a correspondence just even to the natural world. And so we're going to take a few minutes to talk about this morning. If this is the story of God's activity, you would expect that what you find in Scripture, you would find God's footprints in our world. If things actually happen as they say in Scripture, you would expect to find connections to that in our world of science, which you do. You would expect to find connections to that in the world of archaeology. And here's the cool thing. We're going to dive into that just a little bit this morning. We mentioned a number of times that when Elijah speaks to the people of Israel in 850 uh, BC, 850 years before Christ, he's actually picking up on some verses in Deuteronomy where God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel and says to the nation of Israel, I want you to follow after me. They sign on to that and say that they will. But then connected to that covenant, there's both blessings to the nation of Israel for keeping the covenant, but there's also consequences or curses for them not keeping the covenant. Um, We said that in the 
account of Elijah when there's no rain, that that is actually one of the consequences or curses outlined by God for Israel not keeping the covenant. Remember, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 23 and 24. It says this, the sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. That's one of the curses, God says, one of the consequences for Israel's disobedience and breaking the covenant. Now, here's what's fascinating. This is just, I find this yeah, very interesting. Um, in Deuteronomy, this was so important to God. As the people come out of Egypt, they cross the Jordan River, they go into the promised land. And so they're kind of like right around here. Uh, this is so important that God instructs Moses in the book of Deuteronomy to do something like pretty dramatic and pretty kind of, kind of weird, maybe. Uh, God says to Moses, and Moses communicates this to the people of Israel, he says, like, this is so important. This idea of keeping the covenant and the blessings and the consequences that come from not keeping it, that when you go into the land, you're actually supposed to rehearse these curses and rehearse these blessings to one another. Uh, these are the verses in Deuteronomy chapter 27. This is that day, Moses charged the people saying, so this is Deuteronomy 27. Uh, this is right before we hear all of the blessings and cursings. Here's what Moses says. When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim. And so here's the deal. Let me just follow me on this. Moses says this to the people. We're going to gather periodically, there's going to be a group of people on Mount Gerizim. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Six tribes are going to gather on Mount Gerizim. Six tribes are going to gather on Mount Ebal. And here's the cool thing. The six tribes on Mount Gerizim are literally going to shout out loud the blessings of the covenant if people obey the six tribes on Mount Ebal are going to shout out loud the curses. And so this is pretty dramatic. Here's, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 27, verses 11 through 13. When you have crossed over the Jordan River, these shall gather on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. So those are the tribes that are to gather on Gerizim and they're to pronounce the blessings. And then Moses says, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So these are the tribes that are gathered on Mount Ebal. They're the ones that shout the curses. Well, here's what's really cool. A number of years ago, they did some archaeological digs around Mount Ebal. And in 2019, they actually finally sifted through all of the things that they found in this archaeological dig at Mount Ebal. Remember, Mount Ebal was the place where the people gathered to shout the curses. And they actually found in the things that they gathered this little tablet. It's called an amulet. It'll be on the screens. And this is a little amulet that they discovered. Again, it's, it's really tiny. It's really small. Uh, but this is one of the things they discovered. Fascinatingly enough... They just translated this, believe it or not, there's writing on there. They just translated this in March of this year. So this is really recent. Um, they translated this little amulet, this little tablet in March, literally of 2022, literally six months or, or whatever, three or four months ago. And on this little tablet, 
there are 40 letters in Hebrew and 23 words. Here's what they say when translated. Remember, Mount Ebal was a place all the way in Deuteronomy. If this is true, we should expect it to correspond. We should expect to find the footprints of God's activity in our world. That's exactly what we find, whether it's in archaeology, whether it's through the history of the time of Jesus, whether it's through finding things in ancient civilizations and rubble. It corresponds to what we find in Scripture. The uh, significance of that is, once again, scholars often thought that particularly the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, was just kind of like too advanced for what civilizations would be able to write in that time. And so many scholars would previously argue that like Genesis through Deuteronomy was much more recent than it was ancient. Uh, Just the discovery of this little curse, this little amulet, this little inscription actually is a pretty significant demonstration that people, even though those ancient times wrote in the kind of way that the first five books of the Bible are written in. What does that all lead? At least to simply this, friends. Scripture is something that we stake our lives to. It's not simply an opinion. It's not simply, we don't don't gather here because we think it's kind of a cool idea. We actually gather here because we actually believe this is the story of our world and this is the story of our life. If we didn't orient our lives around this, why care? I mean, if this only changes the kind of clothing you wear and what color you wear on Sunday or that you go to church, like, like why bother? But the fact of the matter is, if you're a believer in Scripture and if you're a believer in God, believer in Jesus, you orient your whole life to this story. You change, your your whole life is directed and oriented by this story. So it makes a difference whether or not it's true. And so again, coherence and correspondence, like I didn't come up with them. It's not just like Bible language. You can Google that. Those are actually philosophical terms of tests of truth And scripture actually meets both of them incredibly well, whereas some of the most foundational things of our culture actually begin to break apart with the first aspect of coherence. There's many things we believe in our culture that are self-contradictory. So I just simply want to encourage you, friends. Man, we believe in scripture. It's true. God gave it to us. We stake our lives on it. We can trust in it. it. It's coherent, and it corresponds to reality. And even that was demonstrated in um, as early as March of this year, as this little thing was was translated. Well, jumping back into Elijah for a few minutes, uh, let's do that. In 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, Elijah has this amazing experience, this amazing count of fire falling from heaven. Uh, There's so much that's happened in the life of Elijah that we've seen. Uh, He's prayed for there to be no rain in Israel. God held up the rain. God fed Elijah by a brook. Ravens fed him, brought him meat during the day. Eventually, that ran out. He goes to this widow lady in the area of Zarephath and Sidon. Her flour and oil never run out. Uh, Her son falls ill. Elijah raises him back to life. Eventually, he gathers the prophets of Baal, the people of Israel, on Mount Carmel. Remember, uh, the Baal was the god of 
fertility and storm. And so this is a direct conflict between Yahweh the Lord and Baal, the God of fertility, the God of rains, the God of storm. There's been no drought. So this is already a smashing blow to the worship of Baal. But just to make that definitive and clear, they gather on Mount Carmel. The followers of Baal, the worship of Baal, build an altar. They put on wood, they slaughtered animal. They dance around and they pray that their God would send down fire. They begin to cut themselves and do all kinds of things to somehow get attention. Eventually, Elijah builds an altar out of 12 stones. He puts wood, he puts a slaughtered animal on it. Just to make the point even definitively that much more clearly, he douses it with 12 large jars of water. It's soaking wet. And Elijah quietly kneels and beside the altar and prays for the fire of God to descend. And it does, it descends, consumes not just the wood, not just the animal, but even the rocks, the water. Everything is literally vaporized. And so there's this just definitive moment where the Lord God, Yahweh God, is seen to be Lord. And the God of Baal, the God of fertility, the God of the storms, the God of the crops is truly seen to be no God at all. Here's how some of those verses in 1 Kings 18 read. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And so there's this dramatic moment of the Lord God, Yahweh God, being affirmed and seen to be the true God that he is. Elijah goes to Ahab and he says, Ahab, it's not going to rain. This is what we find in 41 and 42. And Elijah said to Ahab, go and eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. So Elijah is on Mount Carmel. He prays for rain. He prays that God would extend his hand and that there would again be rain. Verses 45 and 46. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. And ask Karen Sykes to come up, and Karen is actually going to read for us the next number of verses, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. But kind of as she's getting ready to read, put yourself in Elijah's place. Look at all that he has just experienced. Fire has fallen from heaven. God has just answered his prayer of rain. It hadn't rained for three and a half years. God now answers his prayer with a abundant levels of rain. You would think that Elijah would just be kind of flush with excitement. On his run away from Mount Carmel, says somehow, I don't quite understand how this works, like the spirit of God is with him and he outruns King Ahab and his chariots. I mean, there's this just sense of incredible victory, incredible power, incredible demonstration of who God is. And so you would expect that 1 Kings 19, man, there'd be 
A lot happening. People have already fallen on the ground and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You would expect victory to continue. But listen to Karen as she reads these verses. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the God to deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horhab, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Thank you, Karen. So we're going to look at three brief things, and then we're going to dig, dive into some of this more deeply again next Sunday. There's adversity, there's exhaustion, and there's clarity. There's adversity, there's exhaustion, and there's clarity. First, there's adversity. Again, Elijah has seen a lot. He's seen the powerful hand of God at work. He has seen fire fall from heaven. He has seen a son who is dead raised back to life. He's seen a jar of oil and some flour never run out. He has seen stones and water and rocks simply evaporated as the fire of the Lord descends. That's what Elijah has seen. He's just literally outran Ahab as he's come away from Mount Carmel with the sound of rain in, in his ears. He's seen a cloud rise over the sea, and after three and a half years, now it's going to rain. And you would expect that now Elijah would really see things happen. Sometimes we deal with this in our own lives. You would expect that in 1 Kings chapter 19, after the people declare the Lord his God in 1 Kings 18, you would expect that God would do so much more. Like maybe 1 Kings 18 is just the beginning. But Jezebel, Ahab's wife, and the queen of Israel challenges Elijah. And she says to him, you just killed the prophets of Baal. I'm going to kill you by tomorrow at this time. And Elijah fears for his life, and he runs. He doesn't quite get what he expects. <clears throat> My guess is that he's kind of anticipating some kind of powerful work of God. And somehow Elijah comes face to face and he's hit broadside by the fact that Jezebel is now challenging and threatening his very life. Reminds us that even though God was the victor, 
there was still adversity in Elijah's life. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a place where maybe you took a step of courageous obedience to God? You took a step of faith. You, you kind of rolled up your sleeve and said, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk in obedience to you. I'm going to walk faithfully according to your word. And sort of out of that, you expected some kind of great work of God. Instead, you might have run face-to-face into adversity. Like last Sunday, we had baptisms. Maybe some of those who were baptized thought, man, I followed Jesus in baptism. I took a step of obedience to him. And then maybe this week, I'm not sure what their week was like, but, but maybe they faced things that were hard. Maybe they were faced things that caused them to fear. And I don't know when you were baptized as a follower of Jesus, but think back to that moment. And maybe you thought, man, I'm taking this step of obedience to God. I'm committing my life to him. I'm giving myself to him. I'm going to follow after him. I'm going to pursue him. And you kind of look and say, man, it's been hard since then. It's been strange since then. Maybe some of you have taken a step toward giving financially. It was a huge step of faith, a step of trust in God. Maybe you've never done that before. I mean, maybe you've given like 20 or 50 bucks, but you're like, okay, man, like, God, I'm going to trust you with my possessions. Like, I'm in. And maybe on the other side of that, instead of saying, like, wow, like, look at all God has provided back to me because I took a step of, of obedience to him. Maybe you actually ran up against a financial challenge. Maybe you lost a job rather than gotten a raise. Maybe you lost income rather than increased income. Maybe you took a step of of serving, maybe here at the church or somewhere else in a group, a life group, a home group, or in kids or students. Maybe you took a step of saying, God, I'm going to serve you. And instead of kind of feeling flush, fresh with the empowerment of God, suddenly you run into adversity. Suddenly... In a group, you have conflict. And you say, like, where in the world is God if I took a step toward him? Or maybe it's even more general. Maybe it's like, man, like, you know, we teach around here, like, Jesus rose from the dead. That his resurrection power is at work in your life. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead That same power through the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And you say, man, that sounds good. But it seems to be under-delivering in my life. I kind of get that sense of with Elijah. That's all he's been through. And now the people are prostrate on the ground. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah probably has these grand expectations for the great revival and turnaround in Israel. And instead he's saying, God, are you under-delivering? I'm still in adversity. Jezebel still wants to kill me. Here's what I want to encourage you, friends. God is faithful. In fact, I would say this. Taking a step of obedience to God often does not minimize adversity. It actually maximizes it. You see, sometimes we have a perspective of God that if we follow after him, that somehow that's going to make the path smoother, that somehow that's going to make the path easier, that somehow God will kind of eliminate the obstacles In Scripture, you often find just the opposite. 
The reality is, friends, you're in a battle. You're in a war. You're in a battle where the forces of Satan and the forces of evil are aligned against you. And if you take a step toward God, if you take a step toward obedience and faithfulness with him, I can pretty much tell you it's not going to be an easy street. I can pretty much tell you it's going to be hard. Maybe some of you fathers or dads or husbands in this room, maybe you at one point put a stake in the ground and said, you know what? Like I've got to step up to being the spiritual leader of my home. Like I'm going to step out and I'm going to lead prayer before we have meals together. I'm going to go out on the limb and kind of like catalyze a spiritual conversation around the table with my family. And maybe you took a step out and said, I'm going to take another step toward living my life in full submission to Christ so that my children and my family can see me as being a male that's first and foremost submitted to God's grace and his power. And maybe you took that step as a follower of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit said, like, man, I'm going to take this step to not just be the cultural macho man, but to actually be strong in the Lord, to be courageous in him, to be fully submitted and humbled before the Lord And I feel like God calling me to that as a dad, as a father, as a husband. And maybe on the other side of that, wow, instead of it being easy street, it became hard street. It became challenging. It became difficult. It became a battle. And there are things that are kind of aligned against you in that. Friends, listen, all I can say is this. Until Jesus comes and makes everything new, the battle will rage. Until Jesus comes again and completely destroys evil, Satan is completely destroyed. Until that happens, there is going to be a battle. I might put it like this. God's victory is certain, but God's victory is not always seen. God's victory is certain. God will be victorious. Jesus was raised from the dead. God is absolutely victorious. Victory is certain, but victory is not always seen. And when Jezebel threatened Ahab, or when Jezebel threatened Elijah's life, he turned and he ran. Because he expected to see continuing victory. He expected to see it there. He expected that the rollout from people declaring that the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, that somehow that was the end of the battle, but it wasn't for Elijah. And so friends, what I want to simply remind you, if you walk away with one thing from today, it's simply this. There is still adversity. Adversity and the battle might actually be an indication that you are walking in faithfulness to God. In fact, I would say if there is no resistance, if there is no battle, if there is no adversity, if things are incredibly smooth, you actually may want to check out whether or not you are taking steps of obedience to Christ. Because there's adversity, there's a battle, but God is faithful in it. Secondly, 
Exhaustion. Exhaustion. We'll cover these last couple things fairly quickly. Exhaustion. Elijah runs, says all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. <clears throat> Earlier it says, he's under this broom tree. He says, this was Elijah's prayer to God. God, I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the brush and fell asleep. It's what Elijah is saying. Elijah is exhausted. He's been through adversity. He's exhausted. He says, God, I'm no better than anyone else. I'm ready to check out. His prayer to God a few hours earlier, a few days earlier, was God sent fire from heaven, and God sent fire. His prayer was earlier, God send rain, and God sends rain. Now Elijah is an, at an utter point of exhaustion, and he says, God, take my life. Like, I'm done. It's too hard. You know, I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but Elijah is at a complete state of exhaustion. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but Here's what's happening in Elijah's heart. Elijah had just challenged Israel with their false prophets of Baal. They had submitted to Baal. They worshiped Baal. It was Baal, the one in whom they trusted. But the fact of the matter is, God was not only interested in confronting Israel's idols of Baal. God was also interested in confronting Elijah's idol of comfort, of success, and of effectiveness. See, Elijah had done everything that he was called to do. And his expectation were, God, you're going to continue to do something that's amazing. Elijah's life was threatened. And suddenly Elijah is on a run. He feels absolutely exhausted. He feels absolutely isolated. And his prayer to God is that he would die. And God is gently saying to Elijah, Elijah, remember, you're not serving for the purpose of being effective. You're not serving for the purpose of seeing large-scale results in Israel. You're not serving to see all that can be accomplished in my name. Elijah, you're not serving to accomplish things for me. You're simply serving me. Elijah, your idol of accomplishing much, your idol of finally being extricated from the battle, your idol of finally getting a moment of comfort, your idol of sort of wanting to cross the finish line early, your idol of wanting to see your effectiveness and wanting to see great transfer, your idol is what you're serving. 
But Elijah, you need to come to terms, to terms with the fact that first and foremost, you serve me. Elijah, I've needed to cleanse Israel's hearts from worship of Baal. I need to cleanse your heart from your worship of yourself. I need to cleanse your heart from worshiping me, not just for who I am, but to demonstrate your effectiveness as my servant. Elijah was exhausted, but that was the moment where Elijah could actually come face to face with the fact that it was just he and God. I don't know where you're at this morning, but maybe you're in that place too. Maybe you're exhausted. Maybe you've tried hard. Maybe you've put in all that you have. And maybe it's simply your moment to say, God, I've done everything. And maybe this is a moment for you to simply come face to face with the God who loves you. Rather than trying to accomplish more, rather than trying to have a greater impact, greater influence, greater effect on others, maybe it's your moment to simply be there and say, God, in my running, I'm running smack dab into simply who you are. Lastly, we'll deal with this much more next week. There's adversity, there's exhaustion, there's clarity. Where was Ahab running? Well, it says he ran to Mount Horeb. As scholars believe that Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are actually the same place. You see, Mount Horeb was the place where God had given the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. Mount Horeb was the same place as Mount Sinai where the people entered into the covenant with Lord Yahweh God. Horeb represented the place of God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness, God's consistency. And ultimately, Elijah was just like his ancestors, like he said. In fact, there's only one person in human history who was ever not just like his ancestors, and that was the person of Jesus. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there. He's the only one who's been faithful to God. He's the only one who's lived in harmony with the Father in heaven. Jesus has seen leopards heal. He has seen the blind see. He has seen thousands fed. He's seen demonstrations of God's power. Jesus has done all of that. And in Gethsemane, Jesus prays to the Father in heaven, Father, remove the adversity. Father, remove the necessity to go to the cross. And the Father in heaven didn't remove it. Instead, Jesus literally fought a battle you and I will never fight. Jesus entered a place of desolation you and I will never enter. Jesus was faithful, and he entered condemnation so that we who are unfaithful, as our faith falters, we can actually enter as sons and daughters of God. And I ask our team to come out, and we're going to sing a song here in just a few minutes that reminds us it's a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer of releasing wherever we are to the God of heaven. It's a prayer of realizing that every one of us has faltering faith. Throughout this whole series on Elijah, we've never said, hey, you've got to be more like Elijah. 
You've got to be as courageous as Elijah. We've never said that. Why? Because Elijah is not the hero of the story. Elijah's faith falters. Elijah's faith wavers. But he's, who's the hero of the story? God's faithfulness. God's goodness. Ultimately expressed in the person of Jesus. He's the one who is faithful. He's the one who is trustworthy. He's the one, even in adversity, who is faithful to the Father in heaven. So let's stand and sing the song together. And wherever you are, whatever space you're in, maybe you're under a broom tree this morning. Maybe you're kind of at the end of the rope. Maybe you're in a space of adversity. Maybe you're in a space of exhaustion. Maybe this is your moment to simply get clarity. Clarity of the fact that Jesus is faithful. Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is the one that you need. Jesus is the one in who you stand. So let's surrender ourselves to God uh, through this song.
moment to surrender to you. Or maybe we're the ones on the run. Maybe we're under the broom tree. Thank you that even though you're there, we're there, you're compassionate, you still pursue us, your grace is toward us. But God, may we run into your faithfulness. May we run into your pursuit of us. Thank you that ultimately we are not the ones who are faithful, but that you are faithful, that Christ is faithful. Lord, we are in him. Strengthen us in adversity. Give us the rest of your Holy Spirit in exhaustion. And may we with clarity see that you are the one who is faithful. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, amen, amen. Prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. Again, we have a little something for men, guys, boys, whoever, uh, out in the patio. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless. Happy Father's Day. Safe drive home.